think after the, the COVID crisis of the last few years, uh, if you look at people's experience of that, there was a, a study got released during the week that said, uh, as a result, workers are facing high rates of fatigue and exhaustion, especially amongst younger and middle-aged workers. Um, that was according to a survey of 1,400 people. And you know, still in Australia, a third of people were considering quitting their jobs. So I think you look back at um, the start of the COVID crisis, uh, you know, like nurses, teachers, public sector workers, a lot of other people were asked to effectively take um, wage freezes, effective pay cuts. Uh, you know, essential workers risk their lives, um, you know, and their health. You know, the beginning of the crisis through working through the lockdowns when you know a lot of other people were able to stay stay and work at home. You know, women took a, a much higher burden of um, even than usual of childcare as childcare centres closed. They had to help homeschool children, uh, and you know they were cut off from any sort of wider support networks. And on top of that, you know there was obvious, obvious mental health strains for a lot of people. You know as a result of the anxiety about uh, what was happening with the pandemic, as well as the um, you know the, the loss of um, social interaction. So after that, you know COVID period, which was a huge strain for a lot of people. Uh, what, what we've seen in terms of the reward for workers is we're now facing a cost of living crisis, um, you know, which is clearly driven by what's happened with inflation. So what, what I was going to talk about was to uh, firstly look at a bit about why that surge of inflation has kind of happened. Uh, then secondly, the, uh, what's happening in terms of um, interest rate rises and the attempt to actually deal with um, that inflation or respond to it. And thirdly, like a bit more about uh, what that might mean and the general situation that uh, the world economy faces and where the, the world economy is, is kind of heading as a result. So, I mean, everyone knows about and you know, can feel the cost of living crisis, but to put a number on it, over the, the last, in the last year, uh, re real household disposable income went backwards by about 5%. Uh, and that uh, is actually the worst figure since the 1982 recession in Australia. So for, for most people in terms of their uh, you know, what they've got to spend, like it feels like recession, um, you know, a recession kind of equivalent um, of impact. Uh, so where did that inflation come from? Well, I mean, obviously it started as a result of the, uh, the pandemic and the kind of um, the supply chain uh, disruptions um, and, you know, and other, other impacts. So firstly, you know, when there were uh, lockdowns, like the, um, the impact of that on like global shipping and transport of goods to consumers was disrupted. Production was also disrupted in terms of you know, uh, components for manufacturing uh, not being available because the other factories that they needed to get them from weren't um, sort of producing. And in terms of the way global supply chains work, that had a, a big knock-on uh, kind of impact, um, particularly felt in things like um, uh, electronic goods where, you know, like the semiconductor um, production was disrupted, um, you know, because there are particular inputs like that which are used in a huge variety of um, electronic and other kind of goods. Uh, the, the other impact of the, um, the pandemic was that in terms of lockdowns, the things that people wanted to buy obviously changed because you couldn't go out to a restaurant, you know, you couldn't um, take a holiday, uh, you couldn't leave your house and therefore, you know, people were more interested in buying, had, were spending their money on um, household kind of appliances, like, you know, a new TV, a new computer, a new lounge suite, um, a lot of people bought, um, you know, uh, actually second-hand cars, the price of second-hand cars skyrocketed in some places because, you know, you, people wanted a car to get around. So, uh, you know, that had an impact as well in, in terms of, uh, you know, the demand for goods and, 
the result of that was that many companies found they could put up the prices because you know there's a lot more demand for particular kind of goods um, due to COVID. Uh, and they found that was a great, great way to, you know, to increase their profits. And so, of course, a lot of them kept doing it. Um, another factor is obviously what's happened with the, uh, the war in Ukraine in the last year in terms of energy prices, uh, you know, in terms of the, the sanctions on Russian oil and gas, um, which have pushed up the, the global prices of energy. Um, yeah, so, uh, you know, we hear a lot from the like, Reserve Bank about, um, you know, as a result of what's going on with inflation, that the solution is sort of that workers have to uh, accept like pay restraint. Uh, you know that they don't want you know more inflation caused by what they've talked about as a, a wage price spiral. Um, you know, so basically the idea is that you know, what's happening is that consumers are spending kind of too much money, or, or would if they got pay rises. Um, but I think in, in terms of that. Uh, effort to say it's workers who have to accept kind of pay restraint as a way to, to deal with inflation. I think uh, it's, it's important to look at the wider issue of like who's actually to blame for the inflation that's happening. Because if workers are you know, experiencing you know, effective pay cuts, like no one is getting a, a pay rise that actually uh, matches inflation, that obviously doesn't explain you know, what's causing uh, the inflation. So I think the, the Australia Institute has put it quite well in terms of saying that uh, what we're actually seeing is not a wage price spiral, but a profit price spiral. Uh, so they um, you know, looked at the Bureau of Statistics data and um, concluded that 69% of the uh, excess inflation has actually been a result of um, an increase in corporate profits. Uh, they calculate that businesses have increased their prices in Australia by a total of $160 billion a year um, beyond anything that was actually necessary to deal with uh, increased costs of production or inputs they might have been experiencing. Uh, so I think, you know, you know at that level, a, a lot of the impact of inflation is, uh, it's relatively short term, like it's things which are caused by the supply chain disruptions of COVID, it's caused by companies thinking that they can profiteer and make um, a bit of extra money. Um, but that's not going to be something which is a lasting issue. You know, like if it's the case that, and it is, workers aren't getting pay rises to actually keep up, uh, with inflation. They're hardly going to be able to afford to continue indefinitely paying higher prices and you know, pushing up the, the cost of goods um, if, they, if they can't afford them. Uh, so at that level, I think, uh, you know, a lot of the issues around inflation, like, they're not something that are going to be um, long-term kind of issues. Uh, and you know, as people use up whatever savings they might have uh, accumulated during COVID, those kind of inflation pressures should um, you know, could, should sort of start to dissipate. And I think already in Australia you're seeing a reduction in um, the level of inflation, so down to 6.8% in February from 8.4% um, over the year to uh, December. Uh, but I think in terms of the, in terms of the response to uh, inflation and the, you know, the increase in, in prices that we've seen you know, from government and, and the state, um, on the one hand you've had like, uh, you know, in terms of actually trying to deal with it, you've had half-hearted responses from the, um, the Labor Party in terms of trying to put a, a cap on um, coal and gas prices. Um, but they admit that that's actually not going to do much more than reduce the uh, extent of um, increasing prices. So there's still going to be another 20 or something percent increase in power prices this year compared to 20 or 30 percent that we've had um, in the last year. You know, that, that's because they say they can't really do anything because you know, more, more spending, more efforts to, to do anything about the cost of living pressures will only kind of um, you know, fuel inflation. Uh, but the major response has been from the um, Reserve Bank you know, in terms of 
doing what central banks globally have done and increasing uh, interest rates. Uh, and that's, you know, there's two immediate impacts of that. One is obviously that it's put up the price of um, the, you know, the cost of servicing mortgages and home loans for um, a lot of ordinary people. Uh, and it's also created a real kind of risk of recession. So they, um, the Reserve Bank admits that you know, the, the cost of what it's doing actually is going to uh, lead to an increase in unemployment, and therefore workers kind of losing their jobs. So again, you know, like the whole effort about actually trying to deal with inflation uh, is being pushed on to ordinary people. Like there's going to be yeah, people out of work. There's people who, again, are having even more pressures on their um, cost of living in terms of uh, mortgages going up. Uh, and that's, that's obviously produced you know, a lot of anger at the Reserve Bank. Like, so Philip Lowe um, you know, has become kind of like a minor hate figure because three years ago he told people that interest rates would be very low for the next three years and that hasn't kind of panned out. And I think um, you know, the Labor government's probably preparing to, uh, to sacrifice him as a bit of a scapegoat for the cost of living pressures that they're not prepared to do um, very much about. Um, but I think the, uh, the idea that you know, this is actually necessary to drive down inflation, I just think is not, not the case. Like the, you know, the, the reason inflation is happening is fairly short term, and if there's actually going to be an effort to deal with it, it shouldn't be like putting the, the burden onto ordinary people. Like if you look at what the Reserve Bank's saying is, oh, inflation is in part you know, because people have too much money to spend, they've got too many savings left over from, from COVID, but um, you know, that's clearly not the case across the board. You know, like it, might be, it might be true that the government briefly doubled the um, job seeker payments like during COVID, but it's not like people who are on job seeker who for the first time were actually out of poverty, um, you know, living on that payment, were saving up huge amounts of money during COVID. Like people who saved up money are the, the rich who, you know, uh, had to forgo their kind of overseas holidays and the kind of lavish spending that they, they usually have for, for a short period. So at that level, you know, there's been no effort to target the people who might actually have a little bit of extra money lying around in terms of the rich. Like the, the burden of actually dealing with inflation is being pushed on to um, ordinary people. I think, like, I think recognising that's important because so often when people talk about economics, it's presented as this kind of neutral, apolitical uh, you know, kind of field where you just have technocrats like the um, Reserve Bank making decisions about you know, interest rates that you know, like aren't elected or whatever. Um, but the truth is the solutions that they, they use and the way they approach uh, the economy is deeply political. And you can see that in terms of the, the, the class impact that it has, like the way they want to push the, the cost of paying for things onto ordinary people um, and not, you know, not actually say, well, let's do something about the companies that are price gouging and putting up their prices. What about you know, more efforts at um, actually dealing with that side of the problem where it's saying we're going to you know, deal with the fact that you know, if there's too much savings you know, that have been built up during COVID, let's take some money from the people who actually have real savings at the, the top end of society instead of targeting um, you know, ordinary people and governments doing nothing about the actual cost of living uh, pressures that pe people face. Uh, so, you know, we all know about those immediate impacts of the um, interest rates, uh, you know, in terms of the way the Reserve Bank's responded to some of the economic overhang from COVID. But uh, another recent casualty people may have seen is that uh, in the US and Europe, it's also uh, triggered a series of banking collapses. Uh, and I think that, that points to a wider question about um, what interest rates and what this um, approach to dealing with inflation might actually mean in terms of the, um, the overall health of the world economy and, and, and what it might kind of trigger in the danger of, of recession. Uh, because I think 
you think go back prior to COVID, before um, you know, we went into lo to lockdowns and so on, uh, globally growth was already slowing and there was already talk about you know, the likelihood of, um, or the possibility of recession. Uh, when COVID actually hit and there was a huge spike in unemployment, um, lots of businesses threatened um, you know, going bankrupt as a result of having to, to close their doors during lockdown. Um, the way government responded to that you know, immediate economic crisis was uh, through stepping in and borrowing huge sums of money with policies like, uh, you know, like I talked about, you know, doubling JobSeeker, um, with policies like JobKeeper where that actually you know, was a wage subsidy to, to pay people who couldn't um, go into work you know, because of COVID to, to try and make sure that um, you know, businesses survived, you know, lots of um, you know, handouts to businesses as well from, from government. Uh, and that was all paid through, that was all paid for, you know, basically through government debt, through borrowing huge sums of money. Uh, and that's also the way that governments have responded to a series of other recent economic crises. So if you look at, you go back to the previous economic crisis in terms of the, um, the global financial crisis in 2008, um, the government response to that was, you know, large stimulus packages. So uh, you look, you know, Remember in Australia, like um, Kevin Rudd at the time, like announced in the end $950 cash handouts to people to try and you know pump money into the economy, and there are a series of other measures to to do that. But it was similar um, around the world. Governments borrowed huge amounts of money to to try and spend to um, to stimulate the economy. Similarly, if you go back to the, the 2001 um, you know so-called dot-com crisis, the previous sort of major economic crisis before that. Uh, the way governments responded, particularly in the US, like where the, the crisis kind of started, uh, was that the, the central bank there, um, the Federal Reserve, uh, responded by cutting interest rates to 1%. So again, you know, trying to get the economy going through making, uh, borrowing money and debt um, you know, very, very cheap. But, but what that actually produced uh, in terms of responding to those crises, like wasn't, um, you know, wasn't a healthy response in terms of, uh, you know, capitalist production. So you had a series of effectively speculative bubbles were uh, you know, created as a result of that um, in advanced economies like the US and Europe. So the, um, the effort to get out of the 2001 crisis created the, uh, created the next crisis in 2008 in terms of the, um, the trigger of um, the subprime mortgage loans in the US where um, people who probably were never going to be able to afford to repay home loans were allowed to, to take them out because um, credit was so cheap, you know, banks had a product they could sell and they wanted to try and make as much money as they can as quickly as possible, um, you know, by, uh, get, you know, by through, you know, through more debt. Um, similar thing happened, I think, in a different way after the, the global financial crisis in 2008. So the, the huge stimulus packages um, and the, the money that governments, um, you know, and the central banks spent, uh, a lot of that went into a share market bubble, like the share prices, um, you know, like soared uh, following that crisis, um, instead of actually, again, instead of that money actually going into powering investment um, that could create growth in the real economy and things like the production of goods and services, so, you know, more manufacturing or, or whatever, uh, that money, you know, that was borrowed was put into financial and real estate bubbles. Um, and I think what that points to is well before, you know, COVID, there was an underlying crisis, um, you know, of profitability in, in the world capitalist economy. Um, because even though like, credit was very cheap, companies weren't prepared to actually borrow to invest um, productively uh, because they were worried that they wouldn't actually make the amount of profit that they thought would actually justify 
that investment. Uh, and I think that, that long-term problem of profitability, I think, points to uh, what one of the things Marx talked about is central to the cause of economic crises in terms of um, a falling rate of profit for capitalism over time as the, as the system ages. So he saw that um, you know, falling rate of profit is key to why economic crises in terms of recessions or depressions uh, actually happened. Um, and that, that falling rate of profit is a product of the, um, the need as capitalism becomes more sophisticated and as the, the system goes on for larger and larger investments in technology, um, tech, techniques of production, uh, and so on. Um, so, like, for instance, if you look at things like car manufacturing or you know, um, semiconductors, like the cost of actually setting up, the cost of setting up um, semiconductor manufacturing, like um, people have mentioned a few times, the, um, the um, TSMC, the Taiwan um, Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation, like the cost of actually uh, developing the new more, new, more sophisticated and advancing the, the ways that actually make semiconductors, like is tens of billions of dollars um, to, to be at the cutting edge of that kind of technology. I guess that's, um, you know, some of the most high-tech kind of um, production that there is in capitalism, but it's true across manufacturing. Like, you look at the number of people that are needed to produce a car in a manufacturing plant today is far lower than it was 20 or 30 years ago. The number of people that are needed on um, the docks to actually uh, bring in um, all the, the goods that are transported to Australia is far lower than it is today because of the introduction of, of new, new, more um, sophisticated technology. And the result of that is that, you know, you've got more technology, more machines and less actual workers that are employed, um, you know, by any given company um, in terms of the ratio between those two things. And that means that the ratio um, of workers compared to um, technology or um, what Marx called dead labour in terms of that, uh, that kind of investment um, grows greater and greater. Uh, and since, like as Marx identified, it's only um, labour that actually creates new value uh, in terms of the, the process of production, um, that, that leads to the rate of profit rel you know, um, relative to investment falling over time. Uh, and so I think you can, I mean, you, you know, there's been Marxist economists that have measured this and shown that, you know, like there's been slight recoveries in the, the rate of profit due to um, trying to raise the level of exploitation, particularly during the, the neoliberal period, um, but hasn't recovered to anything like the levels even that, you know, existed in the, the 1960s and 1970s um, in terms of the advanced kind of capitalist economies. So there's a, there is a long-term crisis in terms of um, profitability underlying the, the problems that, um, you know, the capitalist, co you know, capitalist world economy has sort of experienced. Uh, and I think now what you've seen in terms of the, um, what's happened out of COVID, uh, I think is a particular challenge to the way that uh, governments and central banks have tried to deal with this problem over the last kind of um, two or three decades. So the fact that you've now got like a spike in inflation to um, levels that you know, really haven't seen since the, um, you know, the, the late kind of 70s uh, means that they can't simply do the same thing they've done before in terms of get, getting the economy going by cheap debt, by cutting interest rates to the bone through pumping more money into the economy in the way that they did you know, in previous crises. So like, as I went over in terms of the GFC or in terms of 2001, um, because they're worried that if they did that again, uh, they wouldn't be able to get um, inflation down, that inflation would you know, continue to grow um, and they've got no other tools to actually deal uh, with that problem. Um, so the way they've responded to uh, you know, inflation in terms of increasing interest rates threatens to uh, push the economy in, into recession. 
Um, so I think the uh, yeah the what we've seen in terms of the initial kind of a few like uh, bank failures are one kind of indication of that. So you've seen uh, interest rates producing these bank runs uh, essentially because the value of debts that the banks these banks hold. Um, you know, are now less and so they've lost money as a result of um, the, the increase in interest rates. Um, that produced a bank run because the people who held money in that bank, the depositors, were worried that uh, they were going to lose money because the bank had lost money and so people started to pull their money out and then the bank um, you know, is effectively insolvent. So in the US um, there's a bank called Silicon Valley Bank uh, which you know, kind of specialised in uh, uh, having deposits and money from a lot of the tech companies in Silicon Valley. Valley. Uh, another cryptocurrency bank, um, Signature Bank, collapsed. Uh, and then there's another bank, First Republic, also required a bailout. Um, and over in Europe, um, Credit Suisse, which is based in Switzerland, um, also looked like it was in trouble and had to be taken over by another bank. Um, and in both cases, the, um, the government in the US, the, uh, the, central, um, the central bank, the Federal Reserve, effectively agreed to bail out um, these banks so that they wouldn't wouldn't actually collapse. Um, you know, and, and again, you know, interestingly, like making sure that what they're prioritising in terms of um, Silicon Valley Bank in particular was making sure that um, you know, a series of depositors, quite wealthy people, some, some companies and so on, didn't actually lose money in the process of um, what happened at this bank. So very, very quick to react when there was you know, uh, money uh, you know, and kind of investments threatened from uh, you know, the wealthy and from companies that meant something in terms of Silicon Valley in a way that they're not Governments aren't so keen to respond when there's a cost of living crisis or there's a problem for um, for working class people. So, if you look at the, um, you know, those bank runs are one example of a strain that you can see that's caused by, uh, you know, the increase in interest rates. Um, but you know, much more widely, it also threatens to push the economy into recession because, as I said, the you know, the Reserve Bank in Australia, all the reserve banks around the world, they accept that increasing interest rates will actually. Uh, increase unemployment. This is something that they're happy to see, um, you know, in order to deal with inflation. So the um, the, the official predictions from the, the World Bank and IMF are that um, they hope that you know economies um, will, that most major economies will avoid recession this year. Um, but even those predictions, they're saying that um, growth is going to be weaker than it was last year, and effectively we're looking at um, a period of stagnation in terms of the the world economy. So the, um, the World Bank recently warned that uh, the next five years we're going to see continued economic stagnation with growth the, the, the slowest that it's been in 30 years um, at, at a global level at 2.2% um, growth a year. And that obscure, that, you know, sort of, um, I guess that 2.2% figure, if you actually apply it to advanced economies like Australia or the US or Europe, um, is going to be far, far lower. So like, uh, you know, despite the fact that they're looking at about... Um, Bit higher than that this year, uh, the European um, the Eurozone economies of the EU are only expected to grow by 0.7%. Um, and this is like far lower than uh, you look at the 3.5% that was the case globally during the 2010s um, following the global economic crisis, which itself was far, far slower than um, the period before that, that crisis in 2008. Um, so I think. You know, there's obvious dangers that things could be even worse. That you know, not only would growth be slow, but that what's happening in terms of central banks pushing up uh, interest rates could actually push economies into a much sharper uh, kind of recession. Um, 
it's not clear whether that will happen, but it you know, remains kind of a, a real possibility. There could be more bank runs, um, you know, more bank collapses. Uh, you know, there could be a much higher level of um, unemployment. Uh, businesses collapse as a result of what um, central banks around, around the world are doing. Um, but even if that doesn't happen, I think at best we're going to face you know, years of um, you know, low growth, stagnant economies where uh, companies are under a slow grinding pressure to um, further hold down workers' wages or to sack more people uh, in order to maintain um, their profits. Uh, so I think, you know, like whatever happens, like it's clear that the uh, you know, response of the governments in the state actually aims to make working class people pay for trying to get you know, the world economy out of whether it's a deep slump or whether it's a, a period of, um, of stagnation. And I think in that respect, um, you know, like what's happening in France is a one little indication of the kind of thing that governments uh, start to push in periods like this when they're under pressure economically, uh, you know, when their cost of servicing debt increases, you know, they, they try to push a tax like the attack on the pension age that's, um, that's happening in France. You know, we've already seen in Australia, like the, the Andrews government's talking about having to cut 10% you know, out of all the public service departments because it's um, you know, cost of all the debt that it's accumulated during COVID uh, has gone up. I think in that respect, if, if France is a sign of what we're um, you know, going to continue to see in terms of government's response to the crisis and trying to make workers pay, I think we also want to make sure that the response of workers in France is the response of workers around the world to those attempts, that you know, workers shouldn't simply accept the um, you know, efforts to make them pay for the crisis, but we need to see um, you know, a much higher level of resistance. So whether it's you know, efforts in Australia by workers to actually claw back you know, money in terms that they've lost from uh, the cost of living going sky high through actually trying to maintain wages, or whether it's you know, fighting government attempts to actually make workers pay on a larger scale through pushing through more of those kind of attacks on the public sector, pensions, uh, and so on. And I think in that way, you know, um, France is a very hopeful sign of the possibility of resistance, and we want to um, do what we can in Australia to encourage that kind of response and to, to make sure that workers actually fight, to make sure that it's not workers that actually pay for the crisis, that you know, we push the costs on to the rich and powerful and onto the ruling class. Mm -hmm.